Welcome to the Mark Driscoll Ministries podcast. To find more Bible teaching from Pastor Mark, visit markdriscoll.org. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. All right, if you brought a Bible, go to John chapter 18. This is actually sermon number 40 in John's gospel. And all the experts will say that series should be four to six weeks. We believe 40 to 60 weeks is better. And that and that your attention span is only 22 minutes, and this is gonna be at least an hour. Here's why. I believe that something happens when we open the word of God that is different than when we turn on Netflix. I believe that God wants you to learn his word. I believe that the Holy Spirit shows up to help you learn his word. I believe that God gives you supernatural ability to focus and to also observe what the scriptures have to say. And so when we open the word of God, we're going to receive revelation from God, a word from God. We're gonna get God's perspective on ourselves and on life and on all things. And so as we're in John chapter 18 today, we are in the last minutes, hours of the life of Jesus Christ. And everything slows down. And it's going to take us a few weeks to walk through the final moments of Jesus' life because every single moment, leading up to Jesus' death on the cross is one of the most significant moments in the history of the world. And what we're looking at is Jesus, the most important person who's ever lived and how he responds to the most atrocious injustice and evil and it reveals his character and it also reveals the heart of humanity. And so what I wanna start with today is a simple principle and uh, it's a big overarching biblical principle that God creates and Satan counterfeits. And you're gonna see some counterfeits today. Um, Everything that is valuable is significant gets counterfeited. That's why Rolex watches, right? Gucci handbags and retro Jordans all get, they get fakes, they get counterfeits, they get copies. That's why uh, when I was working my first job at a 7-Eleven as a clerk, Uh, They taught me how to discern between real and fake money. I lived in a poor neighborhood and there were people that thought they could photocopy a bill and come and buy some snacks. I mean, everything that is valuable gets counterfeited, it gets copied, there's a fake of it. And the same is true when it comes to spiritual things. So there is God, he is real, and Satan is the counterfeit God. There are angels that worship and serve God and demons are their counterfeits. God has truth and Satan counterfeits that with lies. Uh, God brings life and Satan counterfeits that with death. God brings light and Satan counterfeits that with darkness. God fills his people with the Holy Spirit. Satan counterfeits that with people being demon possessed. Over and over and over in the Bible, God brings the real thing and then Satan counterfeits it with a fake. And what we're going to see today is a series of counterfeits and fakes where Jesus is standing before someone and he is the true, the authentic, the real. They are the counterfeit, they are the fake, they are the one that is mimicking, mocking him by seeking to present themselves as the one who actually is the real. That being said, we're just gonna jump right in and hopefully this will make a bit of sense. And what we've already seen is that Jesus had real disciples and one of them was a a counterfeit. His name was Judas Iscariot. He had been betraying Jesus, plotting against Jesus, stealing from Jesus for years. And he architected this entire coup attempt where religious and political leaders, uh, those who are counterfeit, led by the counterfeit disciple, would seek to overtake the Lord Jesus and the real disciples. And all of this comes to a head uh, right here in John chapter 18, 
the counterfeit versus the real high priest. The high priest, that's a religious leader. And a high priest would mean a, a, a high-powered, high-profile, high-positioned religious leader. Uh, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and teaching. At this point, they have arrested Jesus. They did it under the cover of night because this is not a trial, this is an execution. They already have an end game in mind and they're just seeking to shove all of the events in succession to get this taken care of, the, the, the removal of Jesus as quickly as possible. Um, Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught, he's a teacher, in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? And those, ask those rather who heard me and what I said to them. They know what I said. Next slide, please. When he had said these things, one of the officers, right? One of the security detail standing by struck Jesus with his hand, punches Jesus in the head saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then had him bound. So we literally cuff God, right? We arrest God, we cuff God, bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Um, so here you've got this interaction between Jesus and a religious leader. This is Jesus on trial by religion. If you are here, you may not know Jesus or you may have a misperception of Jesus and you may think that Jesus is over on the side of the line with all the other religions, philosophies, spiritualities, and ideologies. You need to see here that a line was drawn and on one side was religion, on the other side is Jesus. And actually there is a conflict between Jesus and religion and religion does not like Jesus, amen? So don't, don't allow Jesus just to be one of many religious figures have him standing against all religions. And ultimately Jesus is not so much about establishing, you know, his brand of religion, but entering into relationship with people to transform them. So we see Christianity not as a religion, but as a family of people that have a relationship with Jesus. And so it's highly relational. And here, what we see is false counterfeit religion, judging Jesus. Three things I wanna note about Jesus. Number one, he's honest. He's honest, he's honest. What is happening here is they are causing him to testify. Okay, for those of you that know our legal system, their legal system was somewhat like ours. This is the Jewish legal system. And you're not allowed to testify, you're not supposed to testify against yourself, right? Here, they don't have witnesses. It's the middle of the night. Um, if somebody, arrests you and you're before a judge at 327 in the morning and there is no witness to come forth, you know that this is not a fair trial. Jesus is being asked to testify against himself. They're asking him to do something that in fact he need not do. You need not testify against yourself, but he testifies because he always tells the truth. And what he is saying is, I tell you the truth. I will tell you who I am. I have nothing to hide. And the big issue here is that Jesus says that he's God. You need to know this. Here you're going to see religious leaders and political leaders come together against opposed to Jesus because he says he's God. 
And saying he's God, he is saying that he is the highest authority over all religious institutions and that he is the highest authority over all political institutions. The religious and political leaders, they do not like one another. They do not get along. They do not have anything that really binds them together, except in this moment, they form what I will call an unholy alliance against a common enemy, Jesus, because he says that he is over both of their power structures. And in declaring himself to be God, Jesus is saying something that no other major world religious leader or founder has ever said, and that is that I am God. Jesus' claim to be God is without precedent or peer. He is in trouble here. He is in conflict here because he keeps saying that he's God. If he wants to avoid being crucified, murdered, destroyed, as a young man in the presence of his own mother, all he has to do is change his testimony and deny the reality of his deity. All he needs to do is say, I recant, I have publicly gone on record saying that I am God and I would like to now change my testimony. If he does that, he will live. If he persists in his truth telling, he will die. And how many of you, let me ask you this, if you were lying, you would keep the lie up until they came to kill you. And then you would say whatever was needed to spare you. People tend to only lie when there is a benefit for them, amen? I, I don't know about you, most people don't lie in such a way that causes harm to themselves. If Jesus is saying that he's God, he is going to incur the death penalty publicly and if he is not telling the truth, this would be the time to change your testimony. There is no benefit to him, but he tells the truth. So he will tell the truth that he is in fact God. So number one, Jesus tells the truth. Number two, he is very overt. Again, the backdrop of this story is that all of this opposition was architected by one of his counterfeit disciples, Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was very covert. For three years, he's stealing from Jesus. For an indefinite period of time, he's plotting the arrest and murder of Jesus. He's very covert, he's very sneaky, he's in the shadows, he's dishonest. What Jesus says is, I'm not like that. Everything I've taught, I've taught where? Openly, publicly. I went to the most busy places where people of faith gather. There were large hundreds, thousands of people. I just got up and taught. Everything I've ever believed is on public record. You could bring in hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of witnesses, and they will all tell you exactly what I said. I'm not covert, I'm overt. I'm not sneaky and hiding. I'm in plain sight and I give plain speech. It just shows for you and I to follow in the character of Christ, it needs to require us to ask the question, number one, am I honest? And number two, am I overt? And then number three, Jesus has self-control. So what is happening here, they really don't have any witnesses and they don't have any claim. In Roman culture, you can't be put to death for claiming yourself to be God. Um, you can be hated and despised by Jewish religious leaders, but the Roman empire is this massive political empire. They don't care what your religion is. They don't care what your ideology, they just don't care. The Roman empire is a conglomeration of a lot of nations and religions and ideologies. Here's what the Romans care about. Don't give us any trouble and pay your taxes. That's all they care about. 
right? And so what happens here, um, Jesus isn't going to get in a lot of trouble unless he does something that is criminal. So what do they do? They seek to provoke him. How many of you, there's somebody that really doesn't like you and they really don't have any big issue technically against you, but they keep harassing you and frustrating you and escalating you, getting you to do or say something so that then they'll say, okay, now I finally have something. This is like a boss who really wants to fire you, doesn't really have grounds, so they just make your job so hard that eventually you say or do something that then they could put in your performance review and then justify the termination. The issue here is they really don't have anything on Jesus, and so what they seek to do is get him provoked by doing what? Either slap or punch him in the face, right? How many of you men, this would do it, right? How many, this would do it. How many of you men don't like being slapped in the face? How many of you men, if some guy just punched you, right? What would you men do? Right? Okay, punch it back. We just, that, that, that was the first vote we've ever taken at the church that was 100% unanimous agreement. All the men are like, I would punch him back, right? Uh, Jesus here has two options. He can respond to the man in front of him or the spirit inside of him. Self-control is what happens when we don't respond to the person or circumstance in front of us, but we respond to the spirit inside of us. How many of you know that's hard? How many of you, if, if some guy, if let's, and it's, it's, it, let's say it's four or five o'clock in the morning now, right? And, and this is against the law and you're being completely disrespected and tired, and some guy punches you in the mouth, it's really hard to turn the other cheek. It's really hard to bless those who curse you. Jesus demonstrates tremendous self-control, and I want you to see this. Jesus does not allow people in front of him to determine his behavior. He, he allows the spirit inside of him to determine his behavior. This is what it means to have self-control. And this is incredible. I, how, I, I'm like most of you men. I'm a counterpuncher by nature. It takes supernatural strength for me to not say something to someone who says something or not respond to someone who's initiated. Okay. But again, Jesus is demonstrating character. Now, what's really curious here, all of this happens between Jesus and who? The high priest. This high priest is supposed to be the placeholder and the preparer for the coming of Jesus, who is the real high priest. The priesthood, again, we're gonna get into some ancient culture, a little bit of ancient history, because there is thousands of years removed between us and the storyline of the Bible, but it's important for us to understand it because this is family history. If any of you have pulled up your family history, it's because you wanna know about the history of your family. And what we're learning here is the family of faith, the family of God. And it started, the priesthood did, with two men. There was a man named Moses in the Old Testament and he had a brother named Aaron. And so Moses is the prophet and he speaks for God and Aaron becomes the priest and he serves. So they're both in ministry with different functions. Out of the line of Aaron came a multi-generational family ministry. And this is oftentimes how God works. Mom and dad love and serve the Lord, their kids love and serve the Lord, and the ministry continues through the family. That was called the priesthood. 
And the priest's job was twofold. Number one, to deal with sin. And number two, to reconcile relationship with God. That was their job. They were almost like a mediator. Let's say that a husband and wife are having a hard time. They go meet with a counselor. The counselor is trying to deal with the issues to reconcile the relationship. Let's say it's in a business arrangement. There is acrimony between partners. A negotiator, a mediator will come in and they will deal with the issues to reconcile the relationship. A priest was like that. They were a mediator. They were a reconciler. And what they would do, they would represent God and they would represent the people and they would bring the sins of the people before God and they would deal with them through the sacrificial system. The wage for sin is death. And as a result, the issues would be dealt with so that the relationship could be reconciled. That's the primary job of the priest. And they were like the Old Covenant, Old Testament equivalent of a pastor. Well, and the whole point was, this was to prepare people for the coming of Jesus, who was going to be our great high priest. Uh, The book of Hebrews is a New Testament book that talks about this in large part, and it continually refers to the Lord Jesus as our great high priest. So some of you are here today and you're asking, well, where's our high priest? His name is? His name is Jesus. He's the one who deals with our sin. He's the one that works out the issues between us and God. And he's the one who comes to reconcile the relationship with God. And so what you've got here, you've got Jesus, who is the real high priest, and he's standing before who? The counterfeit high priest. And the counterfeit high priest decides that Jesus is the problem. Okay. Now we can look at that and say, that's, that's unfortunate and that's, But I would say this, oftentimes that is us. There are times, and this is in the realm of spirituality, where we disagree with Jesus. And in that moment, our question is, well, am I the great high priest or is he the great high priest? And if I disagree with him, do I change my mind or or am I willing to judge him? And we live in a world where people judge Jesus, they judge the Bible, they judge Christianity quite freely and quite arrogantly. That's outdated, that's outmoded, I disagree with that, that's wrong, that's not how I think. And what that is, that really is a conflict between um, religious spiritual leaders. And is Jesus the high priest and I will submit to him or am I the high priest and I judge him? That's exactly what's happening here. And let me just say that this opportunity that this man has afforded is an opportunity that we all are going to face that at some point we all will reach something in the scriptures that we disagree with, that we will come across something that says that we are wrong and we need to change our mind, our behavior, our desires. And in those moments, we have one of two opportunities. Jesus is the high priest, he judges me. I am the high priest, I judge him. This happens all the time, amen? Some of you right now, there's an issue in your life and you are in disagreement with God and you find yourself in the same place. Will I submit to the high priest or will I become my own counterfeit high priest? And it moves from the realm of religion to the Roman empire and politics. Next slide, please. Now we get the counterfeit versus the real judge. So this first examination investigation, it was before the religious leaders. Now they're going to bring Jesus to the political leaders. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. They literally go from one guy's house to another guy's house. You know why? This is covert. This is secretive. This is private. This is a murder plot. This is not working through the judiciary and legal system properly. 
It was what time? Early in the morning. So what does this tell you? When did the other trials take place? All night. I want you to see the tremendous injustice that is done to Jesus. We tend to think of ourselves as victims. I want you to see that the greatest victim in the history of the world is Jesus Christ. He has sinned against no one. He has sinned against by everyone. And even the way that he is dealt with is criminal. It is illegal. It's all wrong. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but they could eat the Passover. So they're on the precipice of their holy day, which is what holiday means. And so the religious people cannot go into that guy's house. Why? He's a dirty Gentile. If you're here and you're not, you know, kosher Jewish, you're a dirty Gentile. I'm a dirty Gentile, right? I had pork for breakfast. I'm a dirty Gentile. And their thought was, we can't go into the dirty Gentile's house because that'll make us dirty. I'll explain this in a moment. So Pilate went outside to them and said, (laughs) the political leader is like, hey, you guys wanna come in and talk about this? We can't, you're a dirty Gentile. Okay, well, I'll go outside and talk to you. And said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Um, This would literally be like a church arrested somebody and brought him to the courthouse. And they're like, what is this? This is the weirdest citizen's arrest of all time. And what did he do? Did he kill someone? Did he murder someone? And, and their answer is gonna be, no, we disagree with his theology. <laughs> right? You know, we disagree with his interpretation of Leviticus. The Roman Empire, right? The cop is gonna be like, I don't do Leviticus, right? I do larceny, I don't do Leviticus, right? I do murder, I don't do the Messiah. This is not me, I'm out. So the story continues. They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would have not delivered him over to you. Their answer is this, he's a bad guy, just kill him, right? Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Take him over to the crazy, you know, religious court. We're not dealing with that here. This is not our business, right? This is, a, this is a private religious matter. This is not a state matter. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Well, we wanna kill him and we, and we can't. So that's why we're here, right? I mean, so this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die, okay? So here they bring him before the judge. Who's the real judge? Jesus is. So you got the real judge before the counterfeit judge. And even the counterfeit judge is like, I don't think there's a problem here. Even the counterfeit judge gets it right. Jesus already told us in John chapter five that that the father has entrusted all judgment to the son. The Bible is clear that when you and I die, we're gonna stand before a judge. And who's that gonna be? It's Jesus. So, A judge is supposed to be a placeholder until the real judge shows up. And instead of executing justice, he's executing injustice. And here the counterfeit judge is judging the real judge. Question, do people still judge Jesus? All the time. Now, some people just say, you know, Christianity is the worst thing that ever happened to the world. It's gotten to the point now that people don't even say that they disagree with Christianity, but that it is immoral. That's how you know that there's some counterfeit judges running around. And what we see here is 
religion and politics, do you see that they're working together? Let me just say that this is never a good thing. The religious leaders and the political leaders, they don't like one another. The religious leaders have their laws, their rules, and the Roman Empire rules over them. So there's this constant conflict because what the Jewish people want, they want to overthrow the Roman government and live independent. But what the Roman people want is the taxes that come from the Jewish nation and they want peace across their empire. So there is constant conflict between these two. And here they come together, they form an unholy alliance against a common enemy named Jesus. And I want you to see how Jesus is different than religion. Um, Religion is about rules, Jesus is about relationship, okay? And and their rules are, we can't go into the guy's home because he's a dirty Gentile, and we need to have the court case in the middle of the night because it's almost the holiday, and uh, we wanna murder somebody, but we can't. So we're we're gonna find a way to produce the outcome we want by keeping the weird rules that we make. Religion is about rules. Jesus is about relationship, right? They're not talking with Jesus. They're not eating with Jesus. They're not getting to know Jesus. They're not even considering that maybe Jesus is telling the truth. Some of you want more rules and Jesus wants more relationship. Some of you come to church and just, okay, tell me to do this, not to do that. All of that is secondary. What is primary is relationship. Jesus wants a relationship, not just rules. In addition, number two, religion is outward. Jesus works firstly inward. Let me ask you this. Outwardly, these guys are really concerned about outward things, right? Okay, here's a guy's house. You can go here, but you can't cross the threshold. That's that's something outward. What Jesus is dealing with is inward. What's going on in these religious leaders at this time inwardly? What are they plotting? Murder and false witness. They are simultaneously breaking multiple of the 10 commandments and it doesn't bother them because they're not worried about what is inward in the heart. They're only concerned about what is outward with appearance. Religion cares about how you look. Jesus cares about who you are. The Bible says repeatedly that man looks at the outward, that God looks at the heart. These guys are paying a lot of attention to their outer life, no attention to their inner life. And Jesus comes to change our inner life because once our inner life changes, then what? Our outer life changes. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Guard your heart, it is the wellspring of life. Everything comes out of, everything out here comes from what is in here and they are meticulously concerned about what is out here and unwilling to deal with what is in here. Number three, religion is about making yourself clean and keeping yourself clean. Jesus is about making you clean and keeping you clean. They are thinking that through their actions, they will be clean in the sight of God. They don't know that Jesus is the one that is ultimately going to make them clean in the sight of God. So they are literally trying to present themselves before God as clean. God comes and they plot murder against him, which means they are not clean. Their whole life effort is exposed as frivolity and insanity in an instant. 
Why are you doing all this? So that God will know that we're holy and good people. Well, I am God and you're murdering me. Ergo, you're not doing well, okay? Um, let me say this too. Religious people take themselves too seriously and Jesus helps us take ourselves more lightly. These guys are so serious. Right? I mean, it's interesting. When Jesus walks the earth, people invite him to parties. Religious leaders don't have that problem. Their calendar is free, right? There's not a lot of people like, come over to our house because you're fun to hang out with. Children run to Jesus. You don't see them running to religious leaders. That ultimately, these religious people, they take themselves so seriously, but they take Jesus so lightly. Our world is filled with people like this. Right? Something happens, everybody gets up in an uproar. You know, the, 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 the annual sacrament of digital tomato flinging begins. You know, we're all just in an uproar and we take ourselves so seriously, we take Jesus so lightly. Jesus wants us to take him seriously, take ourselves a little more lightly. I'll give you another one. Religion is about you being the teacher. Jesus is about you being the student. Through all of this, they keep trying to teach Jesus. Uh, you broke the Sabbath, you said you're God, um, you, you did this wrong, you did that wrong. We have a manual and geez, a guy with a clipboard has been following you around and your performance review is really bad, a lot of demerits. What they don't ask is, hey, anything we could learn? If, if they're meeting with Jesus, who should be the one taking notes? Those guys, right? If you're always the teacher and you're never the student, that is a problem, right? I mean, these guys are before Jesus and they get to talk with him. You know what they should ask? Questions. You know what they do? Lecture. Religious people are always ready to tell you what to do and they're never ready to listen or to learn. It's a hard issue. It's a disposition issue. And, and so what happens here, religion and politics, they come together against Jesus. Be very wary, be very careful that you do not think that by putting religion and politics together, that you necessarily will end up in the right position before Jesus. Okay? Gotta be very careful. Very, very careful. What we have is the high priest who's a counterfeit, judging Jesus the real priest in the spiritual realm. In the legal and political realm, we have the judge judging Jesus. That means that he is the counterfeit judge. And all of this comes together um, in the next with uh, the counterfeit versus the real king. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, goes back into his house. How many of you have dealt with crazy, weird religious people that make strange rules? You met them? This is Pilate. Pilate, he doesn't, he's a politician. He doesn't, he doesn't under, he's like circumcised pork. I don't, I, I don't know. Why do they keep coming to my house, right? These are weird religious people, right? Pilate entered the headquarters again, called Jesus and said to him, so he's like, I, I'm trying to figure this out. Are you the king of the Jews? It's a big question. Jesus answered, 
Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, what? Am I a Jew? What he's saying is, you weird religious people are driving me crazy. I don't even know what we're talking about. You guys care about things I don't. You guys fight about things that I don't even understand. I'm a politician. Here's what I want. Peace and tax revenue. That's it. That's my bucket list. Leave me alone. Give me your money. Every government's the same. Amen? <laughs> your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. Pilate's like, I, look, they have a problem with you and they brought you to me. I didn't start this fight. What have you done? What have you done? What has Jesus done? Nothing, it's what he said. Jesus fed hungry people, but they're not going to crucify him for that. Jesus healed sick people, and they're not going to crucify him for that. Jesus loved marginalized and outcast people, and they're not going to crucify him for that. Christianity does have good deeds, but it's primarily about good news. He's not gonna get in a lot of trouble for the good deeds, but he is gonna get in a lot of trouble for the good news. Christians who are cowards will drop the good news and keep the good deeds. We're not gonna talk about Jesus, we're just gonna do nice good things. The reason he got crucified is not because of his works, but because of his words. Not because of his deeds, but primarily because of his declarations that he's God. Therefore, the issue is, is Jesus God? That's the issue. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom, massive pregnant word, is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants, angelic beings, would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews or the religious leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate asked him, okay, so, so you're a king. If he's a king, this could get him in trouble now with the Roman authorities because their declaration was Caesar is Lord. They didn't care what you thought, who you worshiped, what your religion was, as long as your highest allegiance and alliance was to the emperor. If Jesus is saying he's a king, he's saying Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord, that could get him in some political trouble. So are you a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the what? To the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what's truth? Okay, so let's talk about two things here, truth and kingdom. Our world, true or false, eh, shouldn't ask it that way, uh, but I will. So true or false, our world doesn't believe in truth. True. Now, let me say this. First of all, truth is a, a standard of morality that is over you and me. It is like a law of gravity. It exists whether or not you believe in it, okay? So an, a standard of morality is, is like the law of gravity. You're like, I don't believe in it. Well, it still exists, right? Just jump off a building and see what happens. It still exists. And here's what happens. 
there are times that we will deny that this standard of morality, um, that this, this realm of reality exists when it doesn't benefit us. But we're all hypocrites. Everyone is a hypocrite because as soon as we feel that we have been violated, we appeal to that standard, right? So let's say that there are a group of people that are rebelling against this standard of morality. If they feel that their rights are broken, they immediately appeal to a standard of morality, right? That's why I don't get it in this world. The same people who say there is no truth also tend to have a really high quotient of moral outrage. Okay, this is just me. Wait, hello. You know, it's like, I didn't think there was a standard. Why are you upset? Oh, because the standard was broken for you. So here, here's, here's, the, here's the truth. The truth is there is truth and everybody is a hypocrite. We deny that when it doesn't benefit us and, and we appeal to that when it does benefit us. Okay. I'm way, I don't really have notes. I'll give you an example. I was doing a debate in college. Uh, it was a morality debate. It was, on, it was an ethical debate. Um, this will shock you. I was a loudmouth as a young man. And, uh, and so in the, in, the, in the middle of the debate, this guy basically quoted Pilate and he's like, what is truth? You have your view, I have my view, I have, they have their view, we have our view. Everybody's got their perspective, there is no reality. I walked up to him and I said, uh, can I please have your wallet? He took it out of his pocket and I said, thank you. And I put it in my pocket and I went and I sat back down. And he's like, hey, you took my wallet. Well, that's your opinion. That's your perspective. That's your truth. My truth is I disagree. <laughs> right? And he said, hey, give me my wallet back. Are you appealing to a law that is over us both that I have violated? You now are on the horns of a dilemma. You can deny that law and I will keep your wallet or you can appeal to that law and apologize for denying that that law exists. I looked at all the, there was a bunch of frat guys in the room. And so the key is anytime your audience is frat guys, appeal to happy hour. So what I did, <laughs> I looked at all the frat guys and I said, how many of you would like to go after this debate to the pub, chicken wings and beer, happy hour on this guy's cart? Now, I'm a movement leader. I have, <laughs> I now have a very devoted following. Because frat guys, their love language is beer, chicken wings, and shenanigans. That's their trinity. So they, they see this opportunity, right, to have church at the pub. So this guy's on the horns of a tremendous dilemma. I just said that no standard exists but when that standard is violated, my conscience that God created in me forces me to appeal to that standard. Everybody who gets angry knows that there is truth. Everybody who wants something to change knows that there is truth. Anyone that has moral outrage or grief knows that there is truth. 
anyone who feels that there is wrong and injustice somewhere that needs to be righted agrees that there is truth. And here, Pilate is asking this question, what is truth? Jesus already told us in John 14, 6, something about the truth. For those of you that were with us, do you remember what Jesus said? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here's what Jesus says, I am the truth. Not only is there an objective standard of morality, ultimately there is Jesus, who is God, who rules over all people. And when we appeal to that which is right, we are appealing to him who is altogether only and always right. To deny that standard is to deny Jesus who establishes that standard and enforces that standard. So truth is important. We've got an entire educational system that tries to deny this simple fact. And it's like trying to argue against gravity. And the nonsense that happens on college campuses and in public school classrooms, denying that there is such a thing as right and wrong, it is ultimately demonic. And those same people tend to have the most bitter, vitriolic, moral outrage appealing to the same thing that they are denying, okay? Number two, wasn't intended to get so intense. There we go. Um, the issue here is about a kingdom and it's about a king. And again, I told you that God creates and Satan what? Counterfeits. God started as a king with a kingdom. In the kingdom of heaven, in the presence of God, God ruled as king. The father sat on the throne, the son sat on his right hand in another throne. And they were ruling over a kingdom. What happened was Satan decided to set up a counterfeit kingdom. He wanted to take the throne and with his counterfeit kingship came a counterfeit kingdom, came counterfeit servants, angels became demons by aligning with him. So what you had in heaven was a conflict and a collision between kings and kingdoms. The Bible says that there was a great war in heaven and that God and the angels defeated Satan and the demons. Go down a rabbit trail with you. I'm in the middle, Grace and I are, we've got a couple weeks left. The next book on spiritual warfare is due to the publisher. And my mind is just overwhelmed with insight. Probably the deepest, richest season of learning in my 20 year plus history as a senior pastor. And I want you to see that everything that happens on earth started in heaven. Okay? And what happens is there is this war in heaven and God and the angels win that war and they send down the counterfeit, the counterfeit king, the counterfeit kingdom, the counterfeit angels, okay? And so then what happens is we are born into a world that is in the middle of this ongoing war. That ultimately this counterfeit, this series of counterfeits will be sentenced to hell. But the problem is because we're sinners, we have joined the rebellion. We have participated in the coup attempt. We are part of the counterfeit. And so Jesus, God gets off his throne. Our King comes down because he loves us. And he wants us to be part of his kingdom, not that kingdom. Jesus comes down 
And then there is a war between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. We saw this with Judas Iscariot in chapter 13, verse 27 of John's gospel. It says that Satan filled Judas. It's the same old battle. It's the battle that started in heaven. It says in Luke chapter 22, verses 30, 31, 32, Jesus tells Peter, um, Satan has demanded to have you. He already got Judas. Now he wants Peter. Satan has demanded to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. So when you return, strengthen your brothers. The fight is always over the head. See, in heaven, Satan went after God the Father. He's the head. Comes down to earth, goes after Adam, the head of the human race. Here comes Jesus, the head of the new humanity, goes after Jesus. Peter is the senior leader of the 12 disciples. He goes after Peter. Behind all of this is demonic. Behind all of this is spiritual. Behind the world that we see is the world that we do not see. And here what we see is a counterfeit priest and a counterfeit judge and a counterfeit kingdom. And here comes the real priest. Here comes the real judge. Here comes the real king. Here comes the real kingdom. And there is a conflict between that which is real with Jesus and that which is counterfeit against him. What do you believe that's counterfeit? What are you doing that's counterfeit? What are you participating in that is counterfeit? God creates Satan counterfeits. And what Jesus is saying here is that behind all of these issues is one issue, and that is this, who's the king? Who's the authority? Who's the one in charge? Who's the one in dominion? And and ultimately, which kingdom is right and which kingdom will win? The Roman Empire and the religious establishment have come together as one system that the Bible calls the world. And here is Jesus, who is a king with an invisible, unseen kingdom. And what Jesus says is, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' kingdom is from another realm. It's from another reality. He enters into this realm and reality. And what he says is, I'm not trying to run Rome. I have much bigger plans than that. Now, hear me in this. The Roman Empire is the largest, most powerful, long-standing empire in the history of the world. They cannot conceive of anything bigger than the Roman Empire. Jesus shows up and says, that's not a thing. Ultimately, when Jesus comes again, you need to know this, that the kingdom will come to the earth and it will crush all of the nations and nations and counterfeits will be no more and the real in King Jesus is all that there will be forever. You need to know that, okay? So in this moment, there is this collision of kingdoms. It's the same war that started in heaven and it is now the war that is moved to the earth. And when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, what he says is, I could bring my servants into the war. What he is saying is, I have a heavenly host of angels. I have an entire army that you do not see. 
I could commission that army to come to my rescue and defense. You've got 600 men. I've got countless angels. Your guys have been training for war for a number of years. My soldiers have been training for millennia. My soldiers beat angels that became demons. My soldiers threw Satan out of my house. Don't think that I can't handle this. Your Jesus is far too small and your respect for this world is far too big. I mean, this is, this is, this is incredible. Next slide. The counterfeit versus the real Passover. Here's what's mind-blowing, okay? All of this is happening during what time? The Passover, it's a Jewish holiday, which means holy day. Well, here's, here's what we read. After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Question, will he still murder Jesus? Yes. I don't want you to be rebellious. I don't want you to be jaded. But just because someone in authority makes a decision doesn't mean it's necessarily right. Here's what Pilate says. He's innocent and I'm gonna kill him. Because that's political expediency. You and I do not do what is expedient for ourselves. We do what is right in the sight of God. Pilate had an opportunity here to say, I find no guilt in him, therefore I will also worship him. Pilate had an opportunity to meet Jesus. Pilate had an opportunity to be saved. Pilate had an opportunity to go from the wrong kingdom to the right kingdom, from Caesar to Jesus. And he didn't take it because he was thinking about that which is expedient, not that which is true and real and right in the sight of God. Some of you would say, if Jesus would just show up, if he would just manifest himself in my life, then I would believe in him. Pilate stands as an example of one who had every opportunity and no excuse and did not convert. He examines Jesus' whole life and says, I can't find a problem. Let me just say this about you and me. Under that pressure, before a judge, they would find something, amen? Let's just be honest. I would not tell you right now, and I'm like Jesus, I have no faults or flaws. I would, in fact, my mom would spank me even though I'm 48, she knows I'm lying, right? Everybody knows that when our life is put under that kind of microscope, we don't come forth clean. Jesus does, Jesus does. I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom, a religious tradition that I release one man for you at Passover. What he's trying to do is say, okay, I want peace and tax revenue. I've got a crummy assignment. If I keep the peace, I can get an assignment to a better province or jurisdiction through political expediency. I could tell Jesus that he's innocent. I could still sentence him to death. And then I could take one of their crazy religious rules and then get him released so that everybody's happy and I am off the horns of a terrible dilemma. So do you want me to release to you, King of the Jews? You guys want Jesus free? 
they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber. He was probably something called a zealot. A zealot is a political insurgent. Let me just put our term on it, terrorist. He had a small band of military militia that was seeking to kill people and cause mayhem and overthrow the government for his version of jihad, a holy war in the name of God. So it's, hey, do you want Jesus or the convicted murderous terrorist? What do they say? We really like that terrorist. We find, we find that to be compelling and appealing. Here's the moral of the story. Nobody chooses Jesus. And Jesus comes to choose those who did not choose him. This is the goodness of our King. If you and I were given the same decision today, do you want this person or that Jesus? We would choose this person, not that Jesus. Don't think that under the circumstances we'd be any different. Some of the other gospels add to the narrative that the religious leaders stirred up the crowd and formed them into a mob. Jesus dealt with mobs, Paul dealt with mobs. Mobs become empowered by demonic forces to run to erroneous and irrational conclusions. Today, mobs form digitally and it's usually not godly and it's usually not God glorifying and honoring and it's not about the truth, it's just about chaos and disruption and upheaval. What is happening here, a whole mob comes together. I want you to see the humility of Jesus, our King. When he was in heaven, all he heard was, holy, holy, holy. Now all he's going to hear is crucify, crucify, crucify. Our king is a humble king. Our king is a loving king. Our king is a forgiving king. And here's what's happening during the season of Passover. It goes all the way back to the Exodus. During the Exodus, people were enslaved by a world system that was demonic, ruled by the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh stands as Rome stands, as elsewhere Babylon stands as a demonic counterfeit kingdom. The Pharaoh was worshiped as God, he was a counterfeit. He had priests, they were counterfeits of the real priests. They did supernatural signs, wonders, and miracles. Jesus talks about literally counterfeit signs, wonders, and miracles that ultimately what happens is there is a collision in the book of Exodus in the nation of Egypt between the real kingdom, the kingdom of God and the counterfeit kingdom, the kingdom of Egypt. And what God decrees and declares is that I'm going to liberate my people from their oppression to this king and kingdom so that they would be free to worship me. God gives those present an opportunity to repent and be converted and technically some do, but most, harden their heart against God. And as a result, there is a succession of plagues or judgments or wraths that come upon them that culminates with the killing of the firstborn. The firstborn was the hope of the household. The firstborn would carry on the family name. The firstborn was the symbol and the representative of the greatness and glory of the family. And what God said was, unless you repent, death will come to the firstborn male son in every household. How many of you men are firstborn males? I am, okay, raise your hand, men. We're all dead. We're all dead in a night, in a night. 
The only exception was those who by faith took a lamb without defect, symbolizing sinlessness and perfection, considered that animal to be their substitute, slaughtered it for their sin, painted the doorposts of their home with blood, partook of a meal, and then the angel of death would literally pass over that home that was covered by the blood. If you wonder why do Christians talk about blood and being covered by the blood, it's all the imagery of Passover. Jesus comes as the son of God to die in fulfillment of Passover where the firstborn sons died. God has a firstborn son, his name is Jesus, he comes to die. Jesus comes as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I think it was John 1.29, we read that. First Corinthians 5.7, they say, Jesus, our Passover lamb has been slain. The Passover was a placeholder. The king was a placeholder. The priest was a placeholder. The temple was a placeholder. The sacrificial system was a placeholder until Jesus showed up. And there's the real. So what these people were doing They were literally, at this season, they were acknowledging the sin in their life. They were choosing their unblemished lamb. They were bringing it to the temple as the presence of God. They were handing it to the priest who would slaughter it as a substitute. And they were trusting that their sins would be dealt with and their relationship reconciled through the offering of an unblemished substitute. Here comes Jesus. He's the real temple. He is the presence of God on the earth. He is the divine connection point between the seen and the unseen realm. He told them, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And he was talking about dying in our place in his body. Jesus is the real temple. In addition, Jesus is the real lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The real Passover lamb who was slain. He is in the midst and process of going to the cross to substitute himself, to choose those who would never choose him. Furthermore, Jesus is the real high priest and he not only gives the sacrifice, he is the sacrifice. And Jesus Christ is the real and true Passover. You have no idea the benefits that came with Jesus. Today, we don't go to the temple. Jesus makes your body the temple. We do not bring an animal to sacrifice. Jesus once for all laid down his life for the sins of the world. We do not need to have a priest. Jesus is alive today as our great high priest. And if you want to celebrate Passover, feel free, but know this, his name is Jesus. That if you get Jesus, you get everything. If you don't have Jesus, you get nothing. It all comes down to him, amen? I feel like we should collect our offering. We should partake of communion. We should sing. Let's bring the band up. Let me tell you this, we're going to give of our tithes and offerings right now that we don't bring a lamb, but we bring our first and best, our first fruits. This is how we come to worship God. They would bring a lamb, we bring our first and best. 
And every time somebody comes to worship in the Bible, they bring an offering. Offering is part of worshiping. Number two, we are going to partake of communion. Partaking of communion is remembering that Jesus is the Lamb of God, that Jesus is the Passover, that Jesus is the temple, that Jesus is the high priest, that everything that they did is fulfilled in Jesus and we worship him, we receive him, we enjoy him, we accept that which is real, we reject that which is counterfeit. And the reason that we partake of communion every week is we want you to know that your sin is real that your rebellion is real, that the counterfeits are real, and that Jesus is real, and that Jesus' life is without any guilt, fault, flaw, or failure, that he is the unblemished, spotless lamb of God, that he really did lay down his life, that he really did take it up again. And all you need to be forgiven is Jesus. And as we partake of communion, you remember, he shed his blood and he had his body broken so that I could be forgiven, that my high priest could relate to me, that he could forgive me, that he could reconcile me to my God. And so we declare this to be a place of the real, not the counterfeit. We declare this to be a place of worship, not idolatry. We declare this to be a kingdom outpost and not a worldly counterfeit, amen? And so I'm gonna pray for you and we're gonna worship Jesus because he's awesome and he deserves it and he's amazing and he's coming again and the counterfeits and the nations will be no more and all that we will have is our great, good, grand and glorious King ruling and reigning forever. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, we reject all of the counterfeits and we want to receive all that is real. We don't want demons. We want the Holy Spirit. We don't want the world. We want the kingdom. We don't wanna be judges. We wanna be loved by the true judge. We don't wanna be the spiritual authority in our life. Lord Jesus, we want you to be the spiritual authority over our life. We don't want to deny or rebel against the truth. We want to love the truth because his name is Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. If you live in or are visiting the greater Phoenix Valley, please join us at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. You can also watch Pastor Mark live on Sundays, YouTube, Facebook, the app, or at markdriscoll.org. And as Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus.